I've heard too many worship leaders and preachers when we begin our time together worshiping God say something like this, I know that you've had either a really, really bad or a really, really good week, but it's usually a really, really bad week. And then they say this, listen, I, what I want you to remember is that now we're here to worship God. And so I hope that you left that out there. And I hope that as you came into this wonderful sacred place, into the presence of God, um, that you're not feeling overwhelmed or distracted by the things that happened to you this week. This is a very special moment, and now we have an opportunity to encounter the living God, so leave that behind and come in and worship. I know what they're trying to say. I've probably said it a number of times myself. They're, they're trying to help me understand the value of this particular moment and, and this particular place at this particular time. The problem is, is that number one, I don't even think that's possible. I don't even think I could let go of all of the difficulties that have happened. I, I remember one very specific occasion where God, um, God came to me in a very real and powerful way. Uh, my wife and I and our family were out in California. I was speaking out there. We drove out there. Um, I wasn't paying attention. I took our car. Um, I smashed it into the cars around me on the Santa Barbara and uh, freeway. And I remember thinking, or Santa Monica freeway, and I remember thinking to myself, Man, I've got all these things I've got to do. I crashed it on a Saturday. And so now I've got to figure out, we've got to do the insurance thing, and we've got to take it in and get an estimate, and what are we going to do, and how are we going to get home? We've got to get a car rental. And I just, I mean, nobody was hurt. My mind was completely somewhere else, and I remember sitting near the back of this really big church and thinking to myself, like, I, I would rather be doing something else right now. I've got so many other things that have to get done and I just remember sitting there. I remember songs being sung. I remember a sermon being preached. And I'm just completely disconnected. And I don't know if there was um, anything that I could have done to somehow get my mind in that spot. But what's amazing is that in that moment, God said to me, this is where you need to be. Like, this is where you need to be in those moments that you're I'm rattled, that you're confused, that you're stressed out, that you're perplexed. This is where you need to be. You might not be all here, but this is where you need to be. Sometimes it's not the worst things in the world that distract us. It can be the best things. Sometimes it can be a new relationship. It doesn't have to be one that's falling apart. A new relationship that has just captivated your attention. Sometimes it is the, 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 the likelihood of a new job, and I'm really excited, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the future. I mean, I had a great year this year. Man, I had a great weekend this last weekend. Yeah, my team won. Whatever it might possibly be, we can be distracted from difficulties, things didn't go well, to great things, things are going really, really well. Both of them are distractions. And I, I, as more I read the scriptures, the more I believe that it's during those moments that we bring them into, I know this isn't the only place, we'll obviously be learning about that, but we bring them into the presence of God. Because in the presence of God, more than anywhere else, the broken relationships that I'm aching over begin to take on a better understanding, I have a better understanding, they take on a new context. That in the presence of God, those relationships that are going really, really well, those ones that I'm most excited about, take on a new perspective. 
It is so important that we recognize the value and the importance of the presence of God as we come together and worship. And like I said, this isn't the only place. You know, there is an interesting story to the presence of God. God's presence, um, it literally when everything begins, God makes the world, Genesis 1 and 2. God speaks and the world comes into existence. And then at the pinnacle of his creative uh, power, God makes humanity, you and I, our forefathers and foremothers in, in his image. And God puts them on the earth and he says, behold, they are very good. And, and God is, is in communion. God is in relationship with Adam and Eve and the world is right. And when, when everything is right, the presence that we have with one another is good, it's sweet, it's powerful, it's attractive, it draws us in, it doesn't repel us from, it's not awkward, it is just right. But that presence is about to be broken because of a decision, you've heard about it, it's called the fall. Adam and Eve decided that instead of humble obedience of God, what they decided to do was take God on their own terms, try to figure out God in their own way, take God at their own leisure, at their own pace, selectively choose what a relationship with God would look like. Instead of God being their God, he became instead of a God to be worshipped, a God to be used. And, 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 and everything fractured, everything broke, and there was this, this major the separation of presence that actually existed in um, Adam and Eve's life with their creator. And they were expelled from the garden. Now, now what I love about the story of the presence of God is that as you go back and look, we call this the meta-narrative, kind of the overarching story of how God has worked in the world. What I love is in that phase three, that step three, that redemptive move, that merciful walk that God took in our direction, what we actually see is it began in Genesis, I don't know if you can read it, Genesis three. Not Matthew one, not, not when Mary gives birth to Jesus, but in Genesis 3, we actually see the redemptive move of God move towards us. That God moves towards us redemptively, not just in judgment, but out of kindness, out of the overflow of his mercy, the great love with which he loved us. God moves towards us. Where are you, he says to Adam and Eve in the garden. Now listen, the presence, the relationship is going to be strained but it is not forever broken. And it's good for us to remember that. I think that's one of the reasons why it is so important for us to look at the relationships in our lives that are strained, that we might even consider broken, but according to God. And so now, instead of it being humanity and God in, in, in this wonderful, sweet communion, because of sin and rebellion, now what we actually have are everything happening um, in, in God's way. God doesn't abandon his people, but he then occasionally surprises them with his presence. I love this part of the book of Genesis. Abraham will be doing something. He'll have a conversation with which he thinks is a stranger. The stranger walks away and he goes, I think that was the Lord's presence that was here. They're called theophanies. These encounters that people had with God and then they would just stop and like fall to their knees. That was just amazing. And the next thing they would do is they would build an altar and they would worship. 
Worship is the natural response that people have to the very real presence of God. I, I, I do believe that anyone, should they experience the true presence of creator God, the one thing that would overwhelm them in his presence, it would drive them to their knees. Worship is our natural response to God's presence. That's what worship is. That's why when we call to worship, we're not, we're not calling you to sing a song. We're not calling you to, to gather around the Lord's table. We're not just calling you to, to look at some scriptures. We're calling you to encounter God in his presence. And when this would happen in the Old Testament, these powerful theophanies, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all had them. They would build these altars, and these then became sacred places of worship because God's presence was right here. It's right here. But then when we get to the book of Exodus, it's not just Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's all of their descendants. And God comes in his grace and provides an incredible opportunity for all of the people to be overwhelmed by his presence. That all of a sudden it's going to take on a new phase or a new stage that instead of God just meeting kind of one-on-one -on -one with, the, with the patriarchs, with the fathers, but now God is going to come and he's going to dwell among his people. Listen, not everything isn't fixed. We're still in God's plan of redemption and restoration, but God is taking a, an incredible step forward, and now all of a sudden, God gives them his instructions as to what this incredible meeting place is going to be. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of, Ex the book of Exodus. This might actually surprise you. When most people think of the book of Exodus, they think of um, Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues. They think of uh, the fleeing of Egypt, water parted, walking through. Uh, maybe the story of the golden calf. But then what about all of the other chapters? You haven't even given an account of half of the book. You know what the rest of the book is about? What a big, huge section of the book of Exodus is about? It's about this meeting place that the people of God and God himself are going to come together and worship the presence of the holy creator, God. So if you have your Bibles, just turn. I mean, I'm not gonna read it all, I promise you. A lot of it's descriptions about how to build things. So I don't even read those when my wife buys something at Target. You know what I mean? So I'm not, I'm not going to read all of those to you today, okay? But if you begin in Exodus 25, you actually see God giving instructions to Moses. So they're still in this Sinai summit. They're still having this conversation, God to Moses, to the people. God to the people through Moses. They're still having this, but now God all of a sudden changes terms. He's not just giving, interestingly, before even the fullness of the book of Leviticus comes, God says, hey, you better prepare to worship me. You better prepare to encounter me. They know how to set up limits and don't go near the mountain because if you go near the mountain, you will surely die. They know how to do that, but what God is doing is God is now about to invade their present. God is about to come into their midst and they need to get ready. And so in Exodus 25, they begin to take contributions. They talk about the Ark of the Covenant. In 26, they start talking about how the, 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 the tabernacle is going to be built. Um, in 27, they talk about the bronze altar and the, the court that's going on around it. Then they start talking about, and these are what the priests are going to have to wear because everybody wants a good dressed priest, okay? 
So they begin to describe all of those destructions and then you have to consecrate the priests. And then they go through and they're, they're kind of walking through all of these, these furnishings within the temple, each of them having a very symbolic and powerful meaning because the presence of God isn't something you just skip into. I'll tell you one of the things that I think we could learn um, is to prepare for the presence of God. I'm not just talking Sunday. That's just one way that we could prepare for the presence of God. But just to have that, that awareness. A number of years ago, I had um, the, just an incredible opportunity uh, to attend a Catholic service. And the one thing that I loved, I was with this, this, this person, and they were, as they walk in, there was this whole, and I don't, I don't know about for you, some of us like, think ritual is bad and empty. You know, unless it's like your birthday party where we get you presents and that ritual you think is awesome, okay? So give me a break. Yeah, I don't like ritual, really. Um, I bet you your wedding is going to be full of it. Yeah, but that's for me. Oh, okay. So when it comes to like God, ritual seems empty and forced. But when it's your wedding, we should all appreciate it. Don't quite understand that. But ritual is actually a beautiful thing. And, and this person goes through this, this elaborate ritual to prepare her heart for worship. And even though the service had started, so she was a little late, I was just amazed at watching her just go through this ritual in order to prepare her heart and her mind to engage the presence of a holy God. And so you see all of these chapters. This is what happens. Then you have in the middle there, chapter 32, obviously that incredible encounter um, where the, the people of God decide we want to rebel against him and they build a golden calf. Not a good thing to do, by the way. And then right after that, they go right back into instructions and they begin to take up contributions and they have some instructions about Sabbath regulations and, and then they actually collect the money for the tabernacle. Now this is kind of an interesting thing. Right there in Exodus chapter 35, this doesn't happen very often. You know, we really are blessed here for how well, I mean, I've been here for 12 years and, and this congregation, um, by the grace of God, I always want to try to give him um, the recognition and the glory. I know that we are a generous people, but let's always remember it is by God's grace even that we even have that unction in us to give. But for 12 years, we've just been blessed um, as a congregation. And uh, very seldom does this happen. Although we do have an example just last week. Last week, remember at the end of our service, hey guys, um, we're, we built a house for somebody in town. We need about $5,000. We gave $6,400 roughly. That's pretty cool, right? So I get excited about that, which means, hey, by the way, that we have even some money getting ready for our next Help Build Hope. We'll take that, we'll kind of hold it, and we get, can't wait to do a next one. So I love that, but that doesn't always happen. I don't know if you know this, sometimes they hand out offering plates at church, and people are putting in like gum wrappers and different things like that, you know? So, but we are blessed. But here you have in Exodus 35, you have the contributions. And by the time they're done taking up the contributions for this incredible tabernacle that God is building through these builders with meticulous instructions, Moses finally has to come to the people and say, okay, guys, listen, like you, you need to stop giving. We, we just, we can't take any more gifts. The people knew, and this is so important, this is why giving is always tied to worship, is that when, the, when, the, when they were slaves in Egypt, they didn't have much. And, and as you read the, the amazing Exodus, the Egyptians actually came to the Israelites and they began to give them things when they were leaving. Here, take this. 
And, and so it actually says, as they're getting ready to leave, that it's like they had plundered them as in war. And the Israelites left with all of this stuff. Sometimes, sometimes when, when we receive things, before we actually believe we deserve it and we own it, we have just this, this window of, of, um, of appreciation, of gratitude in our hearts. I don't know if it was just this window was still available. I don't, but they, they, they knew that we want to we be a part of this. We want to be a part of this opportunity for us to give because actually, as I look at it, none of this stuff really is mine. This stuff was given to me by others. And even though that we had nothing, it seems like when we left Egypt, we had everything and I just owe it all to him. This is, this is the concept that we should have in worship. It seems like I had nothing. Now it seems like I have all of this and I don't, it's not that I don't deserve it. I can just tell that I didn't earn it. And it's in that moment that the people say, we, we want to give this back to God. And so they do with abundance. And so the tabernacle is built and then we get to the, the very end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40. And I want you to turn to verses 34 through 38. And I want to look at this. This is how the book of Exodus ends. It's interesting. It begins slaves and it ends with God coming and being amidst his people. Exodus chapter 40 the presence of God in that tabernacle encounter, that tabernacle experience. So it's all built, this wonderful, beautiful tent. Verse 34, and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. See, not even Moses could have entered into it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, wherever, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys." So for the next 40 years, the people of Israel are going to have what you and I have always wanted. This, this actual physical manifestation, presence of God right there. That cloud, that fire, that is God's presence. It wasn't there yesterday. It came down after we finished building it. It was crazy. It was amazing. And if you want to know where God, it, look, there he is right there. See the cloud, see the fire? We don't go unless it goes up and then we move out. But if it is down, we stay here. This is how this works. We have this, this automatic response to the presence of God. We know where to go to worship him. And by the way, these things aren't necessarily bad. I mean, they can be actually rather good. God is the one who designed the tabernacle. And then later on, which is outside the scope of this series, the temple. These are God's ideas. See, God is leading us on a pilgrimage from a man to a people ultimately to a place. And he is moving us from these presence experiences with, with mounds of rocks to this elaborate temple or tabernacle to this more elaborate temple and then ultimately Jesus. 
God is moving us in this direction and it is good for us to stop and say, it matters to me that I worship God and I have to worship him in a place because I am a person. And this is why places become very valuable to us. This place has become a very special place for me. A place where I do a lot, I have a lot of memories in here, a lot of, a lot of encounters with God here. It's not just here. I mean, I, if I were to go back to where I went to camp when I was in high school, it's a special place. Do you have a special place? A place where you encountered God and somehow going back there brings back all of those memories, all of those thoughts. See, this is God's plan. God designed us in these ways. That's why it's not, there's nothing wrong with bringing all of your baggage with you. There's nothing wrong with bringing all of the good things with you because it is in the presence of God that the bad and the good take perspective and meaning and purpose in his presence. This is God's plan but it is never intended to stay there. It was never, ever, ever intended to stay there. And so what I want to talk about is God's ultimate plan was not that we would just have this tabernacle because then, here's what I find interesting is that I, I never really put this together when I was little because even though I always wanted kind of a more literal um, presence of God in my life, a place where I could go and see him or I could watch him actually move and act and be. And I would think that would change, you know, like if God really were to walk in here right now, you know you'd be good, right? Like he would get your attention, right? If he just came in, walked down the center aisle, like you'd, you'd pay attention, right? And one of the reasons that we, we, we so argue in our minds is that one of the reasons why I struggle in my life, one of the reasons why I stray is because I just, I forget about the presence of God, but if he was right beside me, I'd remember. If he was really right beside me, like physically right beside me, I would remember, well, the, the, the tabernacle and the cloud and the fire was with them for how long? All of their journeys. Answer me this question. How'd their journeys go? How'd their journeys go? So literally, they're complaining about the manna, smoke, and fire right there. Right? They are arguing, they're bickering, they're doing all of these things. And the presence of God is right there. See, this is what happens. This is what happens, is that because of our nature, our sinful nature, that it is actually easy for us with our sinful nature to be impressed by the smoke in the clouds and then begin to forget about it. See, I'm sure for the first few days, they're waking up, okay, go check and see if that smoke is still there. Well, it's daylight. Yeah, it's there. Nighttime, fire. Okay, that, they were just, they check it, it wasn't at all. But after a while, you know, it just becomes part of the scenery. It just becomes part of the scenery. And it was never God's plan for him to just, like, build a place. God makes it very clear throughout the Bible, there is actually no place that can contain me. There's no place that can accurately reflect the fullness and the bigness and the goodness of me. So you can have these smaller ones because I know that I made you in this way and so there's nothing wrong with these special places of worship, these special places of remembering God. Just remember that was never God's ultimate plan. God's ultimate plan for us to be transformed 
was not through a temple or through a tabernacle or even through a cloud of smoke or fire, but it was through Jesus. The presence of God in its greatest form in God's plan of redemption and restoration comes in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit after he is taken up into heaven. See, this is how the New Testament comes in and doesn't say, oh yeah, all that Old Testament stuff was dumb. No, the Old Testament stuff was actually pretty cool. The tabernacle being built, God's presence coming in, amazing, wonderful, spectacular. You ready? It's just not enough. The law is a wonderful thing. Love the law. Law is great, helpful. Really helps me understand kind of who God is, his expectations of me. It's just, not going to, it's just not going to change my heart. And by the way, guess who knows that? God. Guess who knew that from the beginning? God. Guess who had a plan from the very beginning to transform you and I? God. And the transformation wasn't through temples and tabernacles. It wasn't through sacrifices. It wasn't through priests dressed beautifully. You know who it was through? Jesus Christ. See, he's the purpose. He's the one that all of this drives towards, that all of this goes through. See, there's something actually broken in us when we become infatuated and when we become satisfied in places. When we become satisfied with physical manifestations instead of Jesus and the fullness and the reality of who he is. Hate to burst your bubble, Anthony, but our, the little boy that got baptized first service said something really cool. I was kind of hoping you would have it in your video and you didn't, but I like the Holy Ghost thing was fun. I like that. But little Will, when, when Morgan was challenging him on what it was going to be like, I guess the Holy, Holy Ghost thing's the same idea. But little Will was asked, like, what's about to happen? And Will said, I'm about to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I said to his mom and dad, you need to like, keep reminding him of that. Like what, what we experience when we come to faith in Jesus Christ is more majestic and more beautiful and more intricate and more mysterious and more powerful than any kind of cloud or fire. You know that, right? The fact that God chooses to dwell in us by his spirit after cleansing us by the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than anything that we could ever build to him or be satisfied in. Like they don't even compare. And this is why it's good to ask. I mean, are you, are you desiring like an experience with God? Are you desiring some kind of spiritual experience? A lot of spiritual things happen that have nothing to do with God. And a lot of people desire like spiritual experiences but don't really desire the presence of God. They're not looking for a God to worship. They're just looking for an experience. I'm empty. I'm trying to fill myself, and I'm just thinking, you know, kind of like the Buddhists do their thing, and the Hindus do their thing, and Muslims do their thing, and, and I just thought I would do the Christian thing. But that's not Christianity. The Hebrew writer says it best. I want you to turn to Hebrews 9. We have just this incredible picture, this, this, this intentional comparison. See, there were, there were Jewish Christians at the time because of persecution, we're saying, hey, listen, 
this Jesus figure is really causing more problems than anything else, and I don't know if we need him. That if we give up Jesus, maybe we can go back to our Jewish way of doing things, and we get all the old stuff again. We get the temple back until it gets destroyed, but we get the sacrifices back, we get a priestly kingdom back, we get all this. And the Hebrew writer says, why would you give up? Why would you give up Jesus? Why would you give up the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Why would you give up the, 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 the ultimate God plan for us for something temporary? Hebrews chapter nine, beginning in verse one. Now, even the first covenant, that'd be the Old Testament, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. We just heard all about that. The first section in which were the lampstands and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having an altar, a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was also a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Harrison Ford's still looking for it, okay? So this is like a big deal, like this is beautiful. He's not ripping on it. He's not saying, why would you want that? Because it's a terrible thing. He's going, listen, I kind of get why you would want that, but, and then jump down to verse nine. This is, this is the Jesus component. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect you, you and I and all of the things that we do, even with what God gives us, you and I by our own power and by our own determination, we cannot perfect. Our spiritual efforts, our most devout prayers cannot perfect. Our greatest offering, our greatest sacrifice, even our own lives cannot perfect. Did you know that? See, I, I'm one of those guys that would really like to have a tabernacle or a temple. When I was in Israel, I spent a lot of my time on the Mount of Olives going, oh, I wish I could see a temple. God, why don't we have a temple? I want a temple. And God says, you have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I know, but a temple would be so cool. I'd love to see one right over there. Why? All of these things cannot perfect. Look how it continues. It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation and restoration. Look at verse 11. This is great verse. Underline this verse. But when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made by hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, the blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Isn't that amazing? Why would you want anything less than Jesus? Why would you want anything less than his sanctifying Holy Spirit? Why would you want any experience other than a real experience that comes by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Why would you want to worship God in any way where it is about you when you can worship him when it is about him? 
Jump down to verses 27 and 28. I love this. And just as it is appointed for man and women, don't want to leave you ladies out, okay? It's not just men that are going to die. You ladies are too, okay? You glad I included you? Okay. And just as it is appointed for man and woman to die once, and after that comes judgment, what God's judgment is, is the inevitable presence of God that is coming towards us. You know that. God is coming, and there will be a, an encounter that you and I will have with the living God. I believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what I'm preparing for. How do I prepare? By putting my faith in Jesus Christ. So on that day, I look like him and not like me. So this inevitable encounter. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin like he did on the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, I'm not, I'm not waiting for heaven because I'm tired of this earth. I'm not, I'm not waiting for heaven because relationships are hard. And I'm not waiting for heaven because I'm getting old and my, my, faith, my, my health is failing. I'm not, all those things might have like a, a piece of truth in them, but I am eagerly waiting for Jesus because he is the one I'm now living for. He is the one who died for me and now I long to be with him. You know, that's what it actually means to be a Christian. We're not trying to go, I'm not, I'm, not here to sell, I'm not here to sell you anything. This has absolutely nothing to do with like this really cool resort that you need to understand heaven is so much better than now. You're really going to want to get on this thing. What do I got to do? I'll just get wet, say a prayer, fill out a card, raise your hand. No one's looking, I promise. Really? I'm not trying to try to sell you on a location. I'm trying to explain to you a person. And his name is Jesus. And God sent him. And whoever believes in him will not perish. When that inevitable judgment comes, instead of there being fear, instead of there being I'm not prepared, instead of there being I'm not ready, it is actually an incredible welcome home. This is the difference. There's a lot of Christian people or maybe people who think they're Christian who are just interested in a place and they long to be where grandma went because that'd be cool I really miss grandma but what the Bible actually teaches is that it's not just this place it is about dwelling with God it is about being with him. It is about longing to be with him. It's about that relationship that was, was brought back together. It is about the presence of God now forever in our midst. Here is how it is described, the new presence of this new heaven and new earth. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, hey, look, this looks really cool. Look at those sandy beaches. Look at this amazing golf course. Now, we're not actually going to start explaining what the place looks like till the end of the chapter. Before they start talking about the jewels and the gold, they say this, behold, the dwelling of God is with men. 
and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, that's what it's about. That's why Brady was describing it's about this daily interaction. That's why we're calling you to a person and not to a set of propositional truths. Well, we're not just describing an idea about how to live. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth and God's plan of saving the world only through him. That's why Revelation 21, 22 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says this. I needed this verse because I don't think I could have figured this out on my own. And I saw no temple in the city. This is the new place. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Really? No temple? What are we going to do? Be with him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jesus and for what he does that nothing else can do. I thank you for the amazing pictures of tabernacles and pillars of fire and smoke. And all of that is shadow and Jesus is reality. That all of that, God, is wallpaper and the Holy Spirit is the, is the real, is the, is the substance behind that. And so for that, we thank you. Thank you for what Jesus did that, that actually can perfect my conscience by trusting in him. And so, God, I thank you for not leaving me in my sin, not abandoning me, but providing your presence in its best form of all. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we all pray. And all God's people said,